And Sayadaw Upandita first came to IMS in 1984. Before the retreat began, we were sitting upstairs in uh, M101, and he was quizzing us in the Dharma. And he, he was asking this group of us who were sitting there, just what, are the, what is the essence of the Buddhist teachings? So some of us said, the Four Noble Truths. And some said, the Eightfold Path. Some said, the Three Characteristics of Existence. He just kept shaking his head. (laughs) (laughs) So what is it, Sayadaw? So we asked him. And he said, and this is contained in the Parinibbana Sutta, which is the sutta describing the Buddha's last days, uh, where it's described what the essence of all those 45 years of teaching were, they're all contained in what is called the 37 Principles of Enlightenment. So these 37 principles really touch every aspect of the teaching. And they're the various lists of the five spiritual faculties and powers and Four Noble Truths and Eightfold Path, but it's all together. Now of these 37 factors of enlightenment, one factor appears more often than any other. It appears nine times in that list of 37, and that is the factor of right effort. In Pali, the word is virya. The Buddha was very clear what this right effort is for, what it's aimed at. He said, so this holy life does not have gain or honor or renown for its benefit or the attainment of virtue for its benefit or the attainment of concentration for its benefit or knowledge and vision for its benefit. This is almost everything we think we're practicing for. Uh, The Buddha goes on to say, but it is this unshakable deliverance of mind that is the goal of this holy life, its heartwood and its end. This is the aim of practice. This is the aim of right effort, the unshakable deliverance of mind. Effort is the root of all accomplishment. It all comes out of this taproot of energy. It's the source of all achievement. Without it, without the quality of effort or energy, we simply stay lost in the habituated patterns of our conditioning. We're just playing out all the habit patterns of our minds. So we need this quality of effort to overcome these deeply rooted habit patterns. It's essential, though, that we explore the meaning of effort and how it can be applied, because wrongly understood, and it's very easy to understand effort in an incorrect way, it becomes confused with ambition, it becomes confused with expectation, with a kind of unhealthy striving. And we see in our own practice how over-efforting, you know, when we're striving too hard, 
it leads to tension, it leads to restlessness, it leads to the agitation of our whole system. And on the other hand, when there's too little effort, it leads to discouragement, to disappointment, to doubt, because nothing is happening. When effort is in balance, and this is the great challenge of our practice, to learn about the balance of effort, when it's in balance, both in meditation and also in our lives, it is the antidote to sloth and torpor, and not just you know, the sleepiness that may come, but to that deeper meaning I spoke of, to the antidote to sloth and torpor, that quality which is always withdrawing from difficulties, retreating from difficulties. This is a pattern. This is, this is a conditioning within us. So it's virya, it's energy, which is the antidote to that. When effort is present, there is a strong willingness and an interest to play the edge, to play at the edge of our experience, at the edge of our practice, and not to simply settle into comfortable patterns. You know, when energy is present, it creates a kind of spiritual urgency or spiritual ardency. It's a sense of not wanting to waste time. And over the many years of my practice, you know, in India and then in Burma and in this country, there have definitely been the ebbs and flows of effort. You know, and I've seen, seen this quality of effort go through many changes. But there was one time in particular when I was practicing in Burma at uh, Mahasi Sayadaw Center, It's like all the conditions came together. I felt so fortunate to be there. It was after a period of time where Burma had been closed you know, to foreigners. So it felt like it was a very precious time to practice. And there was this strong sense of not wanting to waste or be mindless at all. Not to waste a moment really taking every step, every movement, everything I did, I really brought that element of care. And it wasn't, it wasn't burdensome. It wasn't like this huge burden that I was putting on myself. It just came out of this intense interest and really wanting to do it, realizing the preciousness of the opportunity. So in this quality of energy is present, it really lights a fire within us. You know, in our practice, we don't, we don't get sloppy, we don't get lazy. But what we need to learn, and I want to go into this a little tonight, we need to learn the art of balancing our energy, balancing effort knowing when and how to strive, when and how really to push, you know, to play the edge, and when it's appropriate to relax, to surrender, to open. In order to learn this balance, this art 
of right effort. We need to have a very clear view of what's happening in our practice so we can apply the right amount of effort. Now sometimes we might feel our minds are just tumbling like a waterfall, you know, a cascade of thoughts and and fantasies and daydreams and it's like we're lost in this tumbling waterfall, lost in past, lost in future. You know, our minds are unconcentrated, our minds are distracted. If this is the situation, there is a particular kind of effort that's needed, and it's called launching effort. And Sayadaw, in his bringing the images up to date, he likened it to, you know, the thrust of a rocket, to launch a rocket into space. One time when I was in college, I was, uh, went down to Cape Canaveral, and I saw a, you know, the launch. It was the thrust needed to get that rocket. In the, it was just amazing, the power of it. So when our mind is just you know, tumbling, we need, a, we need a launching effort to rein in the monkey mind. And we've talked about different ways of doing it, you know, of really staying with the breath, with rising, falling, or in, out, or sitting and touching. Saida used, in his recent visit to the Forest Refuge, he used very strong language in describing the quality of mind that's needed in this phase of launching effort. He said, attack the object, capture the object. You know, it's like this really, really using some force of mind to stay with it. An image that has arisen in my own mind, you know, when I've felt the need to work with this kind of effort, it has felt to me... uh, you know, in, in the rodeos, riding bucking broncos, you know, these horses that keep bucking, uh, and the riders are trying to stay on. Well, sometimes it feels staying with the breath is somewhat like that. You know, it's just riding a bucking bronco, and you know we're on it for a breath or two, a second or two. You know, we keep falling off. So there can be a kind of effort that's just determined. Okay, I'm going to really stay with this. In this kind of effort, we are developing and strengthening two jhanic factors, which again I think have been mentioned, the factors of vitaka and vichara. Vitaka is that initial application of the mind. It's the, it's the quality which brings the mind to the object. It's like a bee going to a flower. So that movement of connecting with the object and vichara is the sustained application of mind. That is the quality of mind that stays with the object once it has connected, like the bee circling the flower. So when our minds are really restless, agitated, lost, bring to mind the understanding that these are the two factors that need to be cultivated. The initial application, the sustained application connecting and sustaining. 
Sometimes it's helpful to minimize the duration of our effort. So, for example, a whole breath may be too much. To actually be with both and in and out may be too much. So really work with the effort to be just with the in-breath, a half-breath, just with the out-breath. I think all of us here can do half a breath, you know, with, with strong intention. <laughs> okay, we, we really bring that intention, okay. Connect with the beginning, just of the in, and then your only work is to stay sustained just for that one half breath in. Did it. Out. Half a breath at a time is enough. And that's kind of the miracle of the practice. We just half breath, half breath, half breath, and the mind actually settles down. So that's one way of practicing this launching effort, you know, the effort that really is making a strong effort to stay connected. Another aspect to keep in mind, which is very important in the practice, and that is reminding oneself of the importance of close attention. You know, because there are ways of going through the day where we fall into a certain meditative disease. You know, and this disease has a particular name. It's called more or less mindfulness. <laughs> we're kind of mindful. We're kind of there. We're not really you know, totally lost. But we're not feeling things closely. And in that non-closeness of attention, the mind just stays scattered, stays agitated. You know, at one point uh, I was in Nepal practicing with, with Sayadaw, and my mind, the conditions were terrible, and I mean, there were five of, five of us, you know, just sleeping on a cement floor in a room next to the latrine, so the smells were really horrible, and the food wasn't that good. It was just hard conditions, and my mind was really grumpy. Yeah, you know, so it's just, mm, yeah, and lots of judgments about everybody. So I go in and I'm reporting this to Syed out, you know, in the interview, and he just says one thing. He says, "Be more mindful." <laughs> you know, and my first reaction was kind of like your first reaction. Thanks a lot. <laughs> But then I went outside and I thought, well, why don't I try it? So I just really made the effort to be more mindful. You know, I started walking, feeling things closely, not that more or less mindfulness, really getting close, feeling the sensations of the movement, not simply knowing that I'm moving, but what are the sensations within the movement? It was amazing. You know, within a few steps, the mind had really settled down because there was not so much room for all the you know, grumpy judgments. Connecting and sustaining, working with the breath, a half breath, 
close attention to what we're doing. All of this is part of this launching effort, the effort to collect the attention, to actually develop some stillness. One, at one retreat we were doing, a colleague of ours, Sharon Salzberg, uh, again, it was her first retreat with Sayadaw, and she, you know, she was an experienced yogi. Uh, she would go in for the interview and start to give her report on the meditation, and he would just interrupt her right away, and he said, what did you experience when you put your shoes on? Well, she hadn't really paid attention. And so he just he said, "Okay, the interview is over." Yeah. So the next the next time she goes in, all prepared to report on the experience of putting her shoes on, and he says, "What did you experience when you were combing your hair?" You hadn't really been paying attention. <laughs> the interview was over. Sharon said that this went on for weeks. Yeah. But by the end of that time, she was really mindful. <laughs> yeah, of all of these little activities. This is the kind of effort that we can arouse. Again, it's not tight. It's not forcing it. It's doing it with care, with a certain delicacy, with a certain grace, but also a certain impeccability. So as our mind begins to settle down from this launching effort, you know, which is really a lot, this, this is a major application of our energy, There's a strong intention here. As the mind settles down, we become more aware of the different and maybe more subtle levels of the hindrances. We see them more clearly. It's like in the beginning of practice, somebody might come into an interview, you know, and if they're asked, you know, can you stay with your breath? Well, how long can you stay with your breath? No, half an hour, 45 minutes. Unlikely. <laughs> but at the beginning of practice, we don't even know that we're wandering. You know, so we're just under this delusion that we've been with our breath steadily this whole time. As the practice settles, it's like we begin to see the hindrances, see the defilements more clearly. That's actually a sign of progress. Because there's more clarity in the mind, more insight. It's like washing a dirty cloth. You know, in the beginning, if it's kind of uniformly dirty, we might not even might not even perceive the dirt that much. But as we wash it and begins to get cleaner, then the dirt that's there just really stands out. And it's it's very obvious. Well, it's the same way with our minds. As we get quieter we really begin to see all of the different hindrances or the kalesas, the defilements. So at this level, we've already launched, and we've had launching energy, we're there, we're a little more concentrated, we see more clearly what's going on. So at this level, we need what's called boosting energy. You know, it's like a booster rocket. The rocket's up, it's flying, but then, you know, the main rocket falls away and there's a booster which sends it further. So this is the kind of energy that's needed to overcome or to work with the hindrances. And now that we're seeing them clearly, how do we relate? Can we work with them? Now there are different styles 
of practice in working with the hindrances, working with the defilements. One way, and this of course is Sayadaw's way, is the way of the fierce warrior, you know. And, and he used language reflecting that. I mean, he would say in his talks, no mercy to the defilements. You know, crush them, pulverize them, grind them up. You know, I mean, that, so that's, you know, that's this, okay, the fierce warrior as these defilements come up in the mind. And it's not without precedence, you know, from the, from the Buddha himself. In, in talking about this quality of strong warrior-like energy, the Buddha said, and this was when he was a bodhisattva striving for awakening, he said, if the end is attainable by human effort, I shall not rest or relax until it is attained. Let only my skin and sinews and bones remain. Let my flesh and blood dry up. I will not stop the course of my effort until I win that which may be won by human ability, human effort, human exertion. There's a powerful sense of commitment and resolve. And what's interesting to me in that, in that statement or teaching is that it really all refers back to what's possible as a human being. It's not like you know, some superhuman thing. It's what we can do as human beings. Arousing this kind of determination. But there is also another approach. And this other approach I call that of the gentle warrior. And the person who in modern times very much exemplifies it uh, is Thich Nhat Hanh. You know, who the Vietnamese you know, meditation master and poet and peace activist. So he has, he has a much gentler approach or perspective in the cultivation of right effort. And so this is a few lines describing how he works. He suggests that we work with the defilements. He's talking particularly about anger here. He says, the Buddhist attitude is to take care of anger. We don't suppress it. We don't run away from it. We just breathe and hold our anger in our arms with utmost tenderness. The anger is no longer alone. It is with our mindfulness. If you keep breathing, mindfulness particles will infiltrate the anger. When sunshine penetrates a flower, the flower cannot resist. It has to open itself and show its heart to the sun. If you keep shining your compassion and understanding on it, your anger will soon crack, and you will be able to look into its depths and see its roots. And so this is a very different quality of right effort. Sometimes we need the fierceness, sometimes we need the gentleness. It's very helpful not to take sides, not to jump in, oh, this is the right way, or this is the right way. But rather to see both approaches, both perspectives, simply as skillful means. And we need to see in any particular moment what is the best skillful means at this time. 
you know, for different people and the same person at different times in their practice, one or the other will be effective. So we want to keep an open mind with us and see that we can draw on both as a way of cultivating this booster effort, booster energy. If we're filled at any particular time with a lot of self-judgment, you know, or self-hatred, crushing and grinding the defilements is probably not a good idea. <laughs> because it's a very easy move from thinking that defilements are bad to thinking that we're bad for having them. That's, a, that's an easy psychological move to make, especially if at any time we're filled with a lot of self-judgment. And once we start thinking we're bad for having these arise, it just cycles again more into more self-judgment and more self-hatred. It's not helpful. It's not a helpful approach. So in this situation, we really need to approach it like Thich Nhat Hanh. You know, with a lot of tenderness, a lot of openness, a lot of acceptance. For other people, or for ourselves at a different time in our practice, when we see we're simply indulging, you know, these endlessly repetitive patterns, just getting lost in fantasies or whatever the hindrance or defilement might be, and we're just indulging it again and again and again, it might be helpful at that time to wield the sword of wisdom, you know, to have that fierce approach, the sword of Manjushri, the sword of discriminating wisdom. Enough. I don't need to do this. You know, and really coming from that place of great strength. So how can we do that? It's really by learning to catch the arising thought right in the moment, to keep the radar out for the thought or the, or the pattern, so that we see it as close to the beginning as possible. There's a, certain, there's a certain precision there and exactness. Catching the first thought so we're not indulging the fantasies, we're not in, indulging the planning or the ill will. So this is, I mentioned the other morning, I guess, you know, this is the punch the pig in the nose technique, you know, it, it can be really helpful. There was, there was a time, it was quite a few years ago now, maybe 10 years, I was on retreat, I was down at the Cape, and some friends and I had rented this house, beautiful house over, overlooking the, the bay. It's like an ideal place for practice. And about a month, it was a two-month retreat, after about a month into it, something got triggered in me, and it was a whole mind-body explosion, you know, of a lot of tremendous pain in my body, and some patterns in my mind, just of anguish. I felt like I spent a month exploring the meaning of anguish. Not pleasant. And one of the things I noticed was that it was one particular thought that would trigger 
the drowning in this whole emotional state. So after falling into it 10,000 times, I I aroused this effort to catch that thought quickly. Because if I could catch it as it arose, punch it in the nose, I didn't have to go down that track. And it was tremendously empowering to realize I didn't just have to kind of roll over with it. There was a way of approaching it from this place of strength. And after having been with it endlessly, that was very powerful. I think with both approaches, both perspectives, the the very gentle one, the opening, the accepting, the fierce, challenging, cutting off mode, they're both skillful means resting on the understanding. And this is a critical understanding, which on one level is very obvious, but it's something we often forget that when we are lost in the hindrances, or lost in one of the kalesas, the defilements of mind, we are actually suffering. That's the reason for working with it. And the Buddha, again, as often, was very clear about this. He said, when these five hindrances are unabandoned in oneself, a bhikkhu, which is all of us at this time, anyone who is practicing, sees them respectively, sees the hindrances respectively as a debt, a disease, a prison house, slavery, and a road across a desert. But when these five hindrances have been abandoned in oneself, that is seen as freedom from debt, healthiness, release from prison, freedom from slavery, and a land of safety. So these metaphors are not simply you know, philosophical abstractions. They really point to what it feels like when the hindrances are there and we're lost in them and when they're abandoned. To hold on you know, and not to arouse this effort, this boosting effort, to work with the hindrances and overcome them and free ourselves from them, it's like holding on to a hot burning coal. Why would we want to do that? So it's helpful to see that this is really what's going on. And when we can work with the hindrances in this way, overcome them with this kind of effort, it's tremendously empowering in our practice. Now, it brings a sense of confidence that everything is workable. This is, this is a very important realization to have. So we launch, we have the launching effort to get us present, we have the boosting effort to overcome or work with the hindrances. Our mind goes from being a tumbling waterfall to a smooth flowing river. 
You know, and the practice starts to flow on very effortlessly, very smoothly. So at this time, a third kind of effort is needed. It's the effort that's needed when our body is open, the energy is flowing, the mind is concentrated, everything is really going well in our practice. But if we're not careful, it's possible to stay in this stage for a very long time because it's relatively pleasant, it's effortless, it's smooth, things are flowing. So here we need what's called, this third kind of effort is called, or energy is called sustaining energy. It's how we introduce into this system in a subtle way, we keep feeding it, you know, feeding energy into it so it moves us forward. So we don't simply stay in an eddy. You know what an eddy is in a river? You know, it's when the current flows counter to the main direction uh, of the river. You know, when it goes in a circular motion, if you're rafting or canoeing, you can get caught in an eddy and just be going around and around and around not going downstream. So we can get caught in an eddy in our practice. So one principle here, in terms of getting out of the eddy, is understanding that effort creates energy. So things are going smoothly, maybe you're in an open, choiceless awareness, simply coming back to the breath very gently, but giving a little more attention, having the intention to stay with the breath for some time. Just that little bit of right effort is enough to get us out of the eddy and in the forward momentum again. It might be just a little more careful attention to the arising of thoughts. So even ones that don't seem to be bothering us very much, just to really catch them, to have a certain alertness. One point with Saido, I went in for an interview and he asked me, did I think I saw more intentions in the course of a day than I didn't see? Well, I was smart enough by then. (laughs) (laughs) to realize there were infinitely more that I didn't see than I saw. But just as asking that question made me start paying more careful attention to intentions. There are are countless intentions during the day. We'll never catch, be aware of all of them. But can we begin to just have that little bit of extra energy of effort become mindful of more of them. So this is a way of you know, increasing the energy of our system, keeps us moving forward. At this level, these are very subtle adjustments. It's not coming in with a big bulldozer you know, to rearrange things. It's just these slight, little more attention to the breath, little closer attention to thought, little more effort to catch intention. Very subtle movements with a very big impact. 
So these are the three kinds of effort that we need to develop. The launching effort, which gets us into the moment. The boosting effort, which is the energy to work with the hindrances, the defilements, whether it's in the gentle approach or the more fierce approach, whichever is appropriate. And then the sustaining energy to move us along when things are going smoothly. As we go through these different stages, one way of understanding and of finding the balance of what right effort would be at any one moment is through understanding two quite different approaches to practice. And one of them called building from below and the other is called swooping from above. So what's building from below? What's this perspective? This is the perspective that starts with the awareness of the suffering that we're in. Now, it's really connecting to the suffering to see how attachment is the cause of suffering. It practices letting go through the insight into impermanence, into dukkha, into selflessness. It's like building from below keeps us connected very directly just to the nitty-gritty of our experience. We're right here, we're right in it. We see the suffering that's there. So it's very real in that sense. Swooping from above is somewhat different. Swooping from above begins not with the suffering that we're in, but it begins with an intuition or a glimpse of the innate wakefulness of the mind. It begins with a glimpse of the very nature of awareness and then practices recognizing and stabilizing that awareness. So both of these approaches are well grounded in the teachings of the Buddha. The building from below. Buddha said, I see no beginning to beings who obstructed by ignorance and ensnared by craving are hurrying and hastening through this round of rebirths. I see no beginning to beings, that's us, who obstructed by ignorance and ensnared by craving are hurrying and hastening through this round of rebirths. So we need to deal with this desire, this craving, this ignorance. That's building from below. The other perspective, which understands the mind to be fundamentally pure, recognizing that, recognize that although the defilements are beginningless, they are also understood as being not intrinsic to the mind. Now this is really important. If the kalesas, if the defilements were intrinsic to the mind, we could never be free. But the Buddha talked of them as being visitors. They're visiting defilements. And there's one famous teaching here. He says, the mind, O monks, is luminous. 
but it is afflicted by visiting defilements. The mind, monks, is luminous. It is released from visiting defilements. So building from below or swooping from above simply reflects or illuminates these two different perspectives. That is beginningless ignorance or essential purity. Well, given the choice, we probably all opt for the essential purity. But it's important to remember that both are simultaneously true. And when we remember that they're both true, then we can find the perspective which is most skillful for us. So we need to be honest about where we are in the practice and see which approach actually will help us. If our minds are continually distracted, it's jumping from one thing to another, with little ability to rest any place, the teaching, well, rest in the pure awareness of mind. It probably is not going to be that much help, you know, because our minds are just all over the place. It's not going to have much meaning. The Dalai Lama tells this wonderful story of the great Tibetan yogi Milarepa, you know, who did, there's a whole family history here, and he had an abusive childhood, and in retaliation, he developed all these uh, magical arts, and, you know, calling up hailstorms, and things, and killing a lot of people, and, you know, so he did a lot of bad things. But then he realized, he came to realize, and he realized, I better get it together, I'm going to be in big trouble. You know, so <laughs> he went to find his guru, his master, uh, Marpa. And there's, there's a life of Milarepa, which is really inspiring. He really needed to work with tremendous effort, with tremendous hardship, you know, over, over many, many years to accomplish realization, to accomplish this great awakening. It's not like, just rest in the natural purity of your mind. Okay. (laughs) It was the result of this tremendous kind of struggle and effort and energy put forth. And part part of Milarepa's story, just before he died, he wanted to pass on the transmission you know, to his chief disciple. And so he asked the disciple to come up to the mountaintop where he was, you know, had in his cave. And the disciple came up and expecting this, you know, really sacred transmission of the teachings. And kind of goes up and, you know, everything's all said and prepared. And finally, you know, it's kind of the culmination of the transmission. It said Milarepa turns around, bends over, lifts his robe and shows the calluses on his butt. That was the transmission. (laughs) That's what it takes. (laughs) You know, we can get all the secret teachings in the world, but unless we put forth the effort to actually practice, it doesn't mean anything. 
It can also be that we get caught up on the other side. We can get caught up in a lot of striving. You know, where we, we keep struggling with defilements. You know, we're lost in this sea of self-judgment and doubt. At that time, remembering the teachings on the essential purity of mind can be tremendously liberating. It was a way of freeing ourselves from this entanglement that we find ourselves in. These teachings on the essential purity of mind, the nature of the knowing mind, can be just what's needed to help us relax back into the moment, into a place of greater ease, greater freedom, a mantra that I have found very helpful in my practice. And so I'd like to share it with you. Whenever I feel myself struggling or reaching forward or anticipating or wanting you know, some better state, just this very simple mantra, already aware. Already aware. It's already here. It's not something out in front of us. And when those words come to my mind, already aware, it's amazing. I can feel just in that moment the settling back, the dropping back into the purity of this knowing mind. So there's both a strength and a weakness in each of these approaches. But a very good balance can be found because the strength of one addresses the weakness of the other. And that's why learning to hold them both can really be helpful. The building from below, the swooping from above. There are two Greek myths which point out the dangers of each approach. Now the first of them, do you remember the, the myth of Icarus? You know, and he kind of he wanted to fly, and he made these wings of wax, but he flew too close to the sun and melted melted the wax, and he crashed to the earth. In swooping from above, we can crash to the earth in several ways. You know, we can confuse this open space-like awareness with spaced outness. Oh yes, I'm just resting in awareness. (laughs) But really, just spaced out. So that's a danger. Or we might start identifying with very subtle states of consciousness. You know, yeah, the mind gets very spacious and calm and peaceful and open, which are lovely states, but if we identify with them, then that becomes a danger. That becomes another hook. One teacher pointed out a very, a very useful distinction in talking about the nature of this knowing mind or the nature of awareness. He said, it's not about spaciousness, it's about groundlessness. And I thought that was very, very useful. Because we can have a very spacious mind that's simply another state. It's another conditioned impermanent state. Groundlessness is when there's not identification with anything. That's the real quality 
of awareness. Another danger of the swooping from above, and this is, I think this is a, a very widespread danger in spiritual scenes in general. You know, we might have a few moments of very clear seeing, of genuine recognition, genuine openness, you know, and to awareness and experiencing it, and it can be quite transforming. But we can, can confuse that experience, that glimpse, that openness with enlightenment itself. You know, and so often people might have that and then, well, now I'm done, there's nothing more to do. And then ignore the unskillful mind states or unskillful actions that still might be present. And we've seen this in a lot of spiritual scenes. So it's important not to confuse a moment of clear seeing, a moment of realization even, with the job being done. There's a wonderful, I I think it's 11th century, uh, Korean Zen master, his name is Shinul, uh, who wrote, there's a book of his teachings, a wonderful book called Tracing Back the Radiance. He really speaks to this issue says, how could you neglect the gradual cultivation of mind simply because of one moment of awakening? After awakening, you must be constantly on your guard. If deluded thoughts suddenly appear, do not follow after them. Reduce them again and again until you reach the unconditioned. Then and only then will your practice reach completion. Nevertheless, and this is an important point, Although you must cultivate further, you have already awakened suddenly to the fact that deluded thoughts are originally void and the mind nature is originally pure. So those moments of realization are important. We still have more work to do, but they reveal to us that even the hindrances are transparent, are empty, and so we relate to them in a very different way. So these are the dangers of Icarus, flying too close to the sun, crashing to the ground. What's the dangers of building from below? You know, where we're really in there with the suffering and dealing with the situations in our lives and in our meditation practice. There's another Greek myth, the myth of Sisyphus, you know, and he was the one who had a, he was condemned by the gods to roll this boulder up the mountain, and as soon as it got to the top, it would roll back down, and he was condemned to perpetually do this. Well, Stephen Mitchell, you know, the poet and translator, he wrote a little piece called The Myth of Sisyphus. He said, We tend to think of Sisyphus as a tragic hero condemned by the gods to shoulder his rock sweatily up the mountain and again up the mountain forever. The truth is that Sisyphus is in love with the rock. He cherishes every roughness and every ounce of it. He talks to it, sings to it. He even dreams of it, 
as he sleepwalks upward. Life is unimaginable without it, looming always above him like a huge gray moon. He doesn't realize that at any moment he is permitted to step aside, let the rock hurtle to the bottom, and go home. So in the building from below approach, the danger is we start fixating on our suffering. You know, where we get so involved and so entangled in it and so caught up in our struggles to be free that we lose sight of the freedom that is already there. Already aware. We lose sight of seeing the essential emptiness even of the kalesis, even of the hindrances. When we overemphasize our battle with suffering, then we overlook the purity of mind that is present, even if it's obscured by the defilements. But they are visitors So in our practice, understanding these two perspectives, building from below, swooping from above, struggling with beginningless ignorance, understanding the essential purity of mind, they're both simultaneously true. And each perspective suggests different ways of working. If we understand each point of view as a skillful means, then at any point in our practice we see what will help us, which is appropriate at this moment, rather than seeing them in opposition. Begin to understand, as the Buddha said in the beginning, the effort is for the liberation of mind, the liberation of heart, we see in any moment the vital issue is freedom. It's not about our ideas of freedom. And it's really through learning about right effort, the three kinds of effort, the effort to be present, the effort to work with the hindrances, the sustaining effort that keeps us moving forward. Learning about which approach, which perspective. Are we swooping from above? Recognizing the essential purity. Are we building from below? Really in there with the suffering that's present. We see that all of these are means that we can employ in our practice and in our lives. These are the means that make freedom possible, and this is the importance of effort in in our practice. I'd like to close with one teaching, which really doesn't have much to do with the talk, (laughs) but I like it. (laughs) And it's it's part of something called the seven-point mind training by Atisha, who was an Indian pundit who brought um, uh, the teachings to Tibet. So he was one of the, the great translators and teachers. 
So these are seven, seven points of mind training. Consider all phenomena to be dreams. Be grateful to everyone. Don't be swayed by outer circumstances. Don't brood over the faults of others. Explore the nature of unborn awareness. At all times, simply rely on a joyful mind. Don't expect a standing ovation. (laughs) Let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.